it's it's similar. They're they're both uh, they're both very <laughs> to me. So. Radio Drome. Welcome to a very cybernetic, interconnected episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Adley. With me, as always, is the Canadian Peter. Hack the planet. And the American <laughs> Cecil. Uh, Jack in, Jack off. <laughs> if you want to do that, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN, and you'll be able to get Nord service. Because we're going to be talking, we're not going to be talking cyberpunk, but we are going to be talking cyberpunk. But with within that whole thing, you're going to be looking for movies, you're going to need to mask your location, and you're going to need a VPN. Go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN, and that'll take you to Nord's site, where you'll get 75% off of a three-year plan for signing up with through our link to Nord. They'll be able to encode your data, protect your data, you'll be able to get around region locking, you'll be able to do a lot of things you probably, the authorities probably don't want you to do, which if you're a true cyber warrior, that's what you want. We've talked about cyberpunk before. I don't want to talk about cyberpunk in general. I want to talk about the weirdness that was the cyber 90s. Because if you guys remember, there was cyberpunk in the 70s, technically. There was cyberpunk stuff in the 80s where it really kind of grew and, you know, all the tropes that we would associate with cyberpunk came from. But what we think of as cyberpunk really came to fruition in the 80s. And then by the 90s, it was almost just like a catch-all. Remember all of the cyber stuff? I'm going to say VR doesn't technically count. Like, Lawnmower Man, to me, is not a cyberpunk movie. Lawnmower Man not 2 really, no. is, though. Lawnmower Man is, is more virtual reality, whereas... Yes. Job's War is totally cyberpunk. There was this big rush in the 90s. Throughout all of the 90s, you could there was not a single year where there was not at least probably three or four cyber movies coming out. Now, some of these don't technically qualify as cyberpunk, but they still have elements to it, like 1990s Megaville. That, it's, it's a Billy Zane movie, Kirsten Cloak from Millennium and Space Above and Beyond. It's her first role. It, it's, it, it's sort of a more of a dystopian 1984, controlling the media kind of thing but it has all of the elements you would think of for a cyberpunk film free jack free jack i think is a strange thing because it has all the trappings of a cyberpunk movie but it isn't in a weird Mm. way free jack besides being a complete mess of a film it wants to be cyberpunk without actually being cyberpunk thing with free jack is it's definitely a film that I think went through a lot of different edits and went through a lot of different cuts watching it, uh, rewatching it recently. It it did have this incomplete feel to it. And I think they did want to go with something different for it. I mean, it is definitely a cyber nineties film though. Like this whole idea of going back in time and harvesting youthful bodies and youthful people to like keep yourself living longer or whatever like that is a very cyberpunk cyber 90s future gazing kind of story and honestly I really enjoy it I really like uh, I really enjoy Mick Jagger as uh, one of the villains I, I always like Emilio Estevez strangely enough I do too everyone complains about Mick Jagger in the movie and how he's he good act. I thought oh, yeah. he was fun in the movie actually he's really really good because he skirts the line like he's good (laughs) and bad on a traditional acting level okay he's not good he has a weird am i really in this movie sort of quality to his performance that is just charming he had a really great charisma about him i think i I 
I think he really nailed it as a villain, and it really makes me think of what he would have been like as Fade in uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. <laughs> so it's like, it's kind of interesting to watch that. And of course, always, Emilio Estevez is always a lot of fun. I do think it is a fun future-gazing kind of movie, but it does get, some of it does get a, a little bit lost in its translation because there was clearly so many edits and, and cut downs done to the film, but it is an absolute example of cyber nineties future gazing kind of stuff. You guys had said there are obviously parts where there's just chunks of the film missing good looking set pieces. I love the concept of it and I would have loved for there to be a full restoration where they actually were able to maybe get a commentary on there. I know the director is sadly passed. There, there's tonal issues all over the movie. It keeps trying to be serious and then comical, but not in a smooth way. The best scene in the whole movie is Amanda Plummer as the foul-mouthed nun kicking Jonathan Banks in the balls. Their little back and forth is the best scene in the whole film. And, the, neither, really and neither of them are main characters. So what does that say about how much we care about the actual story? I think the side characters, David Johansson, the FBI guy from Die Hard and all that, they're more interesting. The guys who are only in the <laughs> movie for five minutes are way more interesting than our main characters. I didn't care about Emilio Estevez or Rene Russo in this. That's part of the problem with me. Maybe that was lost when the director had the movie taken from him. But I liked all the side characters a lot more than I liked our main story. And that's not a good way to make a movie. Cared about the main characters. Yeah, I, to... I always care about Emilio Estevez. He's always really engaging. Like he was really giving it a great performance and he was doing his best. I'm not saying his performance um, was bad. I'm saying the character was so blandly written. There was no character to his character. He was fine. Well, I mean, he was he, was, he yeah. was essentially supposed to be a shell for Anthony Hopkins's conscience to go into. I don't know. I, I thought it I thought it worked. I thought it was fun. I thought it was good looking. I thought it was neat the way that they kind of um the the future where you first see it and everything's all nice and shiny and clean and then you get out to the outskirts outside the city and it's crappy. There's toxic waste. Everybody's eating rats. So it showed like a, a neat duality that you usually don't get with those kind of films you usually get one or the other super wonderful everything is perfect futuristic now or everything is absolute garbage and this was mm -hmm. one where they actually had both there were a lot of mainstream cyber 90s movies i want to talk about those but i first want to talk about the weirder ones that most people are probably not going to remember for instance who remembers the it was a pickup but the trauma released digital profit starring jeffrey combs as the ultimate computer hacker and he is just acting rings on the rest of the actors in this movie who are nobody you've ever heard of before. I saw the it's trailer. It's a lot of fun. Because uh, you sent it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have it on a DVD-R full of a bunch of trauma movies back when probably my late teens and early 20s because I was trying to watch as many trauma movies as I could and I ended up finding all these different ones in, in various places so I just packed them all onto one like DVD-R and it would be a lot of fun it'd be a great thing to like bring to get-togethers and stuff and that was one of the movies we watched uh, at a get-together and Jeffrey Combs is a lot of fun in it it's a really it's a pretty weird movie but from what I remember about it it's a lot of fun and I do think people that are like trauma connoisseurs and whatnot should should find a way to check it out. I think it is is definitely worth watching. It is a, a great uh, cyber 90s movie. The weirdest thing, though, is with it being a trauma pickup, it really doesn't feel like a trauma film, though, does it? Because when you think of trauma, you don't think of, like, a cyberpunk movie that takes itself way too seriously. No, not really. Not what you think of with trauma. But then again, you've got stuff like Roger Corman got into this in the 90s more than once. Am I the only one who's ever seen Don the Dragon Wilson in Cyber Tracker? Oh, God. <laughs> no. I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen all the Don Dragon Wilson movies. And uh, <laughs> there was so many of those cyber uh, movies where it was cyber something, you know, cyber warrior or cyber tracker or cy cyber and, tracker, cybernator. Yeah. You know, and they had they either were uh, a lot of action that had something to do with a computer plug into this computer and you can f 
like a a digital representation of someone. The thing with Cyber Tracker is uh, again kind of like with Free Jack, all the surrounding characters are far more interesting. Don the Dragon Wilson is fine, but the man is not known for range. And mm, the action really, is fine. No. Honestly, that's one of those movies you watch more for the aesthetic and the things around the story. You don't really have to pay attention to the Cyber Tracker story. Mm. But then Roger Corman wasn't done. He hired Fred Olin Ray to straight up rip off Blade Runner with Cyber Zone. Or for our foreign listeners, Droid Gunner, which is just a <laughs> terrible title. I saw it on Droid VH- Gunner. <laughs> Droid Gunner. That was its foreign title. I saw it as Cyber Zone on VHS. Yet yeah, it's Mark Singer is literally playing Deckard. And then he teams <laughs> he teams up with Matthias Hughes, and oh they, they track down pleasure droids that have made their way to Earth. His last name is Ford. There's a character named Philip Dick. It's Fred <laughs> Olin Ray going, we're going to rip off Blade Runner, but we're going to do it just enough that we can't get sued. Can I just say that Matthias, Matthias Hughes like really missed the mark when he could have called himself Matt Huge. And another period of my life when I was trying to see as many, like, cyberpunk kind of movies as possible. So, yeah. And and almost, uh, and also I had discovered uh, Matthias Hughes, or Matt Hughes, as I like to call him. So I was trying to see everything that I could with him in it, because I just found something really interesting about this, like, really Fabio-looking motherfucker that could do, like, martial arts. Because like, he always has that really other. long hair, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. he does. He he literally, he still looks he is um he's jacked still. amazingly. He looks really good for a guy his uh his age. I think he's in his like 50s at this point. Like he still looks like he could be early 40s, like mid 30s. Like guy has really took like good care of himself. But I, I always kind of liked him. He was always one of my favorite off-brand jacked action dudes. And I always found it interesting how he sort of looked a bit like Fabio, but he could do like martial art kind of stuff. And it's like, this was a fun one to see him in. Well, and then there's also, and again, this one's got two titles. I saw it as Virtual Assassin, but it was also released on VHS as Cyberjack. This is the one where Brian James has got like the white hair and he's the evil megalomaniacal guy who steals the ultimate computer program and and little wormy ptsd michael dudikoff has to die hard his way up the building to stop him this was a staple of uh mid the late 90s cable like this was always i saw on. it on joe bob's show man joe bob showed virtual assassin under that oh, title wow. <laughs> nice i saw it as cyberjack i think i might have rented it too because I, i'm trying to remember because it it's been a while i may have seen it on cable as virtual assassin and then rented it as cyberjack but uh i remember both titles but yeah i'm, I'm like what i'm not gonna watch a movie with michael dudikoff versus brian james and like dude <laughs> Susie kaiser is so freaking gorgeous in this as the as the nerdy scientist isn't she Oh, I always love when they do that. It's like like with um, Elizabeth Shue in uh, The Saint, where <laughs> where they're, they're giving her these really... And I'm not saying that pretty women can't be scientists, but I'm saying that it's funny when they have like a knockout who like they're trying to portray as like a nerd. But, and but, but like, if you remember in this, Suki Kaiser is so beautiful, isn't she? Oh, she's she's really cute. I, I, I loved her. But it was that thing where it was like, oh, she's the nerd. And it's like, she's the nerd that's like an 11. But then you also had weirder ones. Forever, I was not able to find this movie. I had to go in IMDb Rowdy Roddy Piper's filmography to find this because it's not it's not under the title I saw it on. I saw the movie as Cyber City, but apparently it's titled The Trailer, The VHS, everything else is called The Shepherd. C. Thomas Howell is an assassin for the church run by crazy cyber evangelist Rowdy Roddy Piper. Am I the only one who's seen The Shepherd, a.k.a. Cyber City? It's, uh, I've I, seen I've seen this one once or twice. Yes, I remember because you sent us the trailers for a bunch of these, and so I remember it, but I don't remember it well. So I'm trying to remember if I actually saw it or if I just saw the trailer like on a VHS for like another movie. Because all I remembered was, wait a minute, wasn't there a cyberpunk movie where Roddy Roddy Piper was a preacher? And when you say that out loud, it sounds so much better than the actual film. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Well, but then there is, I've only ever seen this one once, Circuitry Man. Oh, I love Circuitry Man and and Plughead Rewired. Oh my God. I never saw the sequel. I never saw the second one and I only saw the first one one time on either HBO or Showtime in the like late 90s. 
Oh, they showed this. Yeah, this was another staple. Uh, one and two, they were showing on HBO and whatnot, like all the freaking time. The circuitry man, because he's got all these wires coming out of his head, kind of like pinhead as a reggae yeah, guy, kind of guy. He looks ridiculous. <laughs> you, you know who was who was Plughead? Vernon Wells. I know. I'm saying he looks ridiculous, though. But it's supposed to be ridiculous. It's this weird sort of post-apocalyptic, futuristic, cyberpunk. Like, it's a whole bunch of concepts all kind of thrown into a blender. It's It was neat. I thought it was a really different movie. I always dug it. I, the first, I will admit, the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, I didn't really know what to think. And then it, it stuck with me. And I watched it again because it was on cable, like, all the time. And I thought it was neat. Like, he's such a unique villain. It's it's also partly like a road movie where uh, the the girl and I remember uh, they go to a, the the desert at some point. Yeah, they mm. they go through the desert and then like they have to fight Plughead like in his own mind. It's it's a weird movie, but uh, I always dug it. I thought it was a neat movie, and and on top of the fact, like one of the lesser known Vernon Wells movies, and he plays a really good villain. I think even he looks ridiculous, but he's it's still cool. Well, but then there was another one that's pretty unknown out there called Cyber Bandits. It's got a great cast. You've got Grace Jones, Adam Ant. You've got Robert Hayes as a super sleazy villain. You've got Henry Gibson. You've got James Hong. It was directed by a guy named Eric Fleming, Eric with a K. And he actually stopped by to talk to us a little bit about Cyber Bandits. How did Cyber Cyber Bandits come about? Because this wasn't your first film, and it's a relatively obscure movie even today in the streaming circuit. How did this come about for you? So the way Cyber Bandits came about was I had done a short film at USC called The Silver Surfer, which got a lot of attention because primarily because uh, we were doing very state-of-the-art CGI stuff when really only James Cameron had done it in T2 and uh, uh, what's the water? The Abyss. The Abyss. Those have been the only two films with a kind of a live, a live moving character in CGI. There, of course, had been things like The Last Starfighter with like hexagonal type stuff. It got a lot of attention. I got signed by a major agency. They were sending me out on meetings. The kind of bittersweet part of it was all these big meetings I was having with heads of studios. They really wanted to know like how a film student did these CGI effects. You know, they were like when they're paying $100,000 a second. We, sh- we should also point out that the Silver Surfer short was done in the early 90s when this was yeah. really not done and especially not done by a film student. No, never done. The only way you could really do that, that Marvel comic character is with CGI and not have it look stupid. And we met with Marvel and they said, listen, because we want to have permission. We didn't want to do it and then have them say you can't show it. So we flew out to New York. We met with them. They said, listen, you're willing to try, but but you're not going to be able to do it. They said, we've painted a bald guy silver. We've, we've tried it every which way. It looks terrible. And then we reached out to ILM and James Cameron and asked if they could help us. Because they'd done, you know, T2 and the Abyss. They were like, you guys aren't going to be able to do this, <laughs> you know. But yeah, here, here's how we did it. Here's what you should use. Here's how to shoot it. Nine months later, you know, it was a one-day shoot with nine months of four guys doing the computer animation frame by frame. This was like before motion capture. We pulled it off. So, and I think it holds up pretty well for being like, God, 30 years old, at least. I did notice in Silver Surfer that there's a moment where the surfer picks up a T2 action figure and I thought, okay, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's why we did that. That's exactly why we did that. It was originally going to be a G.I. Joe doll. And then we were like, oh, we have to do a nod to T2. So that the short got a lot of attention. I wanted to do kids films. You know, magical. I was raised on Spielberg and Willy Wonka, and that's what I wanted to do. But I wasn't getting like really any offers. You know what's interesting if you have filmmakers that that listen to this is that I didn't have a project ready to go. I got all these meetings, these huge meetings with producers, studios, and they all said, what do you want to do next? And I said, "Uh, I don't know. You know, I had this amazing opportunity to pitch them something. I didn't have anything ready to go. So what happened is William Morris, the agency, was um, they were working with this company, IRS Media. 
who, which is Miles Copeland's company. He founded the police with his brother, Stuart Copeland, created a record label called IRS that had a lot of big bands came from it. R.E.M., The English Beat, on and on. They started a film division. So they wanted to do, we can get into the cyber movies they wanted to do in a second. We're going to do four. They reached out to the agency saying we need four directors, probably that we can get cheap. They sent my reel over and then I got offered the film. It was originally called A Sailor's Tattoo, which I think was a way better title. There's really no bandits in this movie. I never understood why they changed it to that. But they, I said, so I say to my agent, they say like, we got you, we got your first film. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, can I read the script first? The script was terrible, much worse than than what you're seeing in the film. Like really like almost borderline like Skinamax movie, like sex scenes and gratuitous, like very um, chauvinistic qualities, which some of it is still in there with the uh, villain. I really tried to pull it all back. But so I read the script. I called them and said, the script is terrible. Have you read it? And they're like, it doesn't matter. Just do it. You need a feature. They're like, if it's bad, no one will see it. If it's good, we'll make sure people see it. Just do it. So I said, don't they even want to meet with me or hear my pitch? They're like, no, it's a done deal. I went in and I met with them and I was honest. I said, like, I don't like, you know, the script needs a lot of work. And so the executive there, she said, well, you can rewrite it. So I went away for three days with the guy they'd already hired as the line producer. We rewrote the script top to bottom and made it really cool and way more cyber. And then we come back and it turns out the executive had screwed up. She didn't talk to the head of the company to get permission to do that. The head of the company had already sent the bad script, the original script, to Columbia TriStar, who were putting up the domestic money, gotten it approved. I don't know. I mean, I don't know who read it over there, but got it approved. And so he didn't want to resubmit a new script. So he was like, sorry, you got to shoot the script. So I I remember, I mean, to this day, I remember, you know, viscerally being sick to my stomach because this was not the first film I wanted to do. It was not the film I wanted to follow Silver Surfer and all the hype that came from that. But again, the agents who I felt I had to listen to said, do it. Said, you need a feature under your belt. You know, you've all you've done is a five minute short. And so I went ahead and did it and I made the best of it. And I think I brought a lot more to it than what was there. Yeah, it was it was it was it was crazy. And I, you know, I watched it last night, which is probably the first time I've watched it all the way through since making it. I was really hard on myself. I was not happy with it. I literally didn't get out of my bed for nine months. I fell into such a depression. And I look back on it now and I, and I was like, wow, for being 22 years old, I think I did a pretty good job. You know, it's 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 a B movie, but it's, uh, it is what it is. It also seems to lack some of that sleaziness that you said is in the original script, because I noticed other than the stripper, when they go into the strip club, I don't recall any nudity in the movie there's, at all. There's no nudity. And there was just, I mean, I don't want to get graphic, but there was like the opening scene on the yacht where uh, the guy slaps her, which is the, the heroine, which is really misogynistic. I look at it now and like with the whole Me Too thing, I just cringe. He he was like, like basically sexually assaulted her in that scene. And I was like, I will not shoot this. How did you go approach shooting the movie as it is? Because it, it, as you said, the Sailor's Tattoo is a better title. There is cyberpunk stuff in this. Not, not a ton of it, but it's really more of a tropical movie with cyberpunk right. trappings, if that makes sense. That totally, you nailed it. Here's the, their vision was they wanted to do four movies, all set on the same island, a tropical island called Pacifica, that had all this kind of cyber technology. Now, keep in mind, this is like right when cyber became like this buzzword. There was like Johnny Mnemonic, the cyber craze. And what's so funny about it is like it was done in the mid 90s. And it's it's classic Hollywood where, you know, we we in the very first scene, he says that it's it's currently 2010. And, and it's, it's so funny how we thought like there'd be all this insane technology. And I guess in watching it, you know, there is stuff like like um, FaceTime and Skype. You talk to an image, you know, there is some stuff, I guess, that we all knew was coming. The, the, but, the, the um, VR stripper, the, the VR hooker thing is kind of Oculus-y. Oculus-y. The little pad that it, that's the tease to that, which is the... Uh, the little hologram hooker, which we shot exactly how they did 
Princess Leia doing Help Me Obi-Wan, you know, it was just off a off a, a piece of glass. You know, those effects, I just think look better, those in-camera in effects. The idea was that it was all digital currency, which I think is coming. You know, I've, I've been approached to do things with this Bitcoin because I, I produced and directed a lot of reality stuff. And this Bitcoin mining is insane. And, and probably the future will be all digital currency. But we got the year way off. Kubrick with 2001, like, you know, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite on our way to Jupiter. There's very little. So I did I do the Silver Surfer. They think I can do these CGI effects on this this indie low budget film. You got to remember, Silver Surfer took us nine months. Everyone working for free, everything donated. It, you know, there's no way you can do that on like a film where people need to be paid. So there is a very scattered, maybe 10 seconds of CGI in that whole film. One, and it's like the moment where the hologram girl appears. You know, where the nightclub dissolves into the, the beach and then she appears on the on the table. You know, that was CGI. In the opening credits, there's some CGI shots of like monorails that we added into to downtown San Diego. When they use the weapon to send some to send them to hell at the end and all the fire comes in, like that was CGI. But there's very little CGI. Most of it is was old-fashioned practical stuff. Yeah, because that's all we could afford. I think the whole CGI budget was probably five grand. What was the total budget for the movie? Because the reason I ask that is it's very, it's very clean. It's very lit well. It doesn't look low budget, but it also doesn't look high budget. The fact that they got a movie that looked that good. So I was told the budget was a million dollars. In the early 90s, there was no nothing digital yet. You know, there was nothing shot digitally. There was no digital editing. It was shot on film. You know, the digital revolution hadn't happened yet, you know, in terms of filmmaking. So I was told it was a million dollar budget. Now, during the shooting of it, everything was so cheap and low budge. Uh, you know, I thought of a funny story that the finale scene where they're in the boat and they're in the cabin and they've saved the day, they're clinking their champagne glasses. So I remember when we were about to do that scene, the prop master comes up to me and says, Lime producer will not give me the money to buy champagne glasses. He said, why don't you use paper cups? So I had to go like send a PA to go get champagne glasses. It was like crazy. Years later, I talked to the lime producer. I said, was that, did we really have a million dollars? That didn't feel like a million dollars. You know, like it was supposed to be a million dollar film. I got paid nothing. Everyone got paid nothing. We shot it in like 13 days. You know, he said, no, it wasn't a million dollar film. It was maybe around 400,000. He said most of the money was hidden and went to fund the company and to help fund the other three films that were supposed to get made. So before we talk about the other movies, this has got, I wouldn't say an A-list cast, but it's got a lot of recognizable actors on the cast. You yeah. know, you got you got Henry Gibson always playing a fun sleazebag, which is always yeah. nice. And I'm going to wager because there's always this thing you see. The people who always play scumbags in movies tend to be the nicest people in real life. Oh, he's a sweetheart. But then you've got like Robert Hayes, who almost always plays nice guys. Okay. And he, he plays actually... such a bastard in this. No, I know. I know. That's probably how they got him because they uh, wanted him to play across against type. You know, he is a total sweetheart. He is married to Cherie Curry, who was the lead singer of The Runaways. She did the my favorite thing about the film is she did the the, the, end, the end title song. Uh, which she wrote for the movie, which which I loved. And she paid for it and produced it on her own. Not just her, you have a couple of other rock stars in here. You have Adam well, Ant, who honestly looks like he's having a great time. And then you have notoriously difficult to work with Grace Jones, oh, who yeah. she does not look like she's enjoying herself in this film. So Miles Copeland, who's a music guy, who executive produced the film. It's his company. By the way, that company only did one good film. They did a bunch of films, and the only good one was One False Move, that Billy Bob Thornton. It was like his first film with uh, that he wrote. He, he w managed all these musicians. So I was kind of told I had to cast as many roles as possible out of the musicians. So Martin Kemp, the lead, is from Spandau Ballet, but he had just done a great movie called The Craze with him and his brother play um, Cray Brothers. Down with that, because that movie's awesome. Adam, I was a huge Ant music person. I, I was most excited more than anything to meet and work with Adam Ant. And I remember in the pre-production office, I had Adam Ant posters on the wall. So I'm so excited. I meet him. I'm talking with him. He would not talk to me about music. Anytime I brought up his music or anything about his music, he would change the subject. And, but he wanted to talk about John Ford Westerns. He, he was just, he's very odd, very shy, very quiet. But he really comes out great, like when the camera's rolling. And he's very pale. The, um, and he has also the most brutal death in the movie, too. 
he get he kept getting sent back to makeup to make him his skin tone darker, 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 darker because he was looking like a ghost. He's very, very fair skinned. Um, but he was fun. Grace, Grace is like a hoot, but she she was great with me. But she was yes, notoriously difficult. She was probably on God knows what. She had a posse of gay men that followed her around that were with her the whole time. Uh, the makeup artist had never done makeup on an African-American. So she gets sent to makeup. The makeup artist tries to do it. Grace throws a fit. I come in and look at it. It's horrible. Grace ends up redoing the makeup herself. But Grace was having a fit in her trailer. And they said, Grace won't come out of her trailer. So I go to the trailer. I go in the trailer with her. And I just say to her, hey, let's just have fun and hang out like as long as you want. Whenever you're ready, we'll go back to the set. And so we were just laughing and having fun. And there was a scene, uh, some like, Beak, you know, second unit footage of her driving around in this big convertible 50s Cadillac or whatever car it was with her henchman. And she didn't know how to drive. So we we have the car delivered. The car, you know, like movie cars, it's brought on like a truck that unloads it. And it's not like a brand new like cherry car or anything. So we're teaching her how to drive in this big parking lot. She literally starts doing donuts and crashes the car into like a post. The, the funny thing about it is two weeks later, the National Enquirer puts out this story that the headline is Grace Jones goes on wild driving spree while director pulls hair out, which is not at all what happened. You know, there was a situation, but it was not. She just was doing donuts and crashing to a hole. I, no, I loved her. She was cool. I wish there were she was in it more. But here's the other thing. She 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 didn't she didn't memorize her lines. She couldn't memorize her lines. So anytime you see her doing the line, it's on either on, on a cue card or you'll see there's a scene where she's sitting working, typing on a computer. And what I did is I had them just type the scene on the computer screen. And I told her, Grace, just listen to what he's while he's talking, pretend like you're typing, get your line, turn back to camera, say your line. And she would try and like do three ones, and then she couldn't remember. I was like, Grace. Just do one at a time, one line at a time. Get your line, come back and say it. Go back to the computer screen, get your next line, come back and say it. But she was cool. Well, and you also had the always amazing James Hong, although only for Uh really one scene. Yes. So my big thing was because I couldn't really do anything interesting with changing the main characters because I'd, I'd been like handcuffed. What I tried to do was blow out the the incidental characters, you know, the um, one scene characters, like the girl at the motel, James Hong. James Hong is awesome. He just said, can I do this opera thing and improv it? And we were like, go for it. And I don't know if you waited till after the end credits, but we put the one raw take at the very, very end of him doing the unedited, his Chinese opera thing. Because I was a big Blade Runner fan, so that that was really cool. Well, I've also heard he's a really nice guy, too. Super nice. So nice. So you've got this cast, you've got these musicians on the cast, you've got a smaller budget than you thought you had, you have a script yeah. you don't exactly want to, to shoot, and we're going to talk about that again in a second. But So when the film came out, was was what was on screen your movie? Was it your edit, no. or was it kind of was it taken away from you at oh, all? Or are you were you yeah. happy that I made a movie? Uh, here's 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 how it was. No one no one had notes. You know there was this company was so random they didn't even care about these little cyber movies. They they I we edited the full movie. Rebecca Ross who had just edited the Prince movie Under the Cherry Moon, and so I love Prince. So I we were just. She, I would just dig print stories out of her. We edited the whole movie together uh, on a flatbed. No, remember, nothing digital yet. And we just, I mean, we showed it to the executives, but they had no notes. Again, like, because I was so driven to try and make it better, I think I brought in a movie that looked way better and felt bigger than what we actually had. But again, as, as a filmmaker, it's all about the story. It's all about, It all starts with the script. If it ain't on the page, it ain't going to be on the screen. It doesn't matter how good you make it look, how glossy you make it look, good the actors deliver it. If it's a bad script, it's going to be a bad movie. And so I, it was not the movie I wanted to be my first film. Like I said, I didn't get out of bed for nine months. I thought I'd ruin my career. I made this great short, made all these connections, and destroyed my career. Let's talk about that script then. The script is not written by who you thought it was. 
No. And, and and this is kind of some typical Hollywood bullshitting that's happening. It, the, the, um, you know what? The same way with the budget, how you're told you have a million bucks, but you actually don't. Typical Hollywood stuff. Tell us about the script and what happened when you went to ask the writer for things. So they won't let me, they won't let me rewrite the script. So they're like, listen, we'll fly to New York. You can meet with the writer and he'll, he can do some changes for you. So I concede to that. At that point, I'm told that the script was actually written by this guy, James Goldman, who had won the Oscar for a movie called Robin and Marion. And his brother, William Goldman, is like a legend in Hollywood. He goes under the pen name for these low-budget movies of Winston Beard, which is kind of funny that he uses Beard. So we fly out there. We go up to his penthouse. We eat dinner. We're sitting around the table, and they they will not talk to me about the script. I keep trying to bring up the script, and they're like, oh, we'll, t- we'll get to that. So we finally finished dinner, and it's like, okay, can we uh, talk about the script? He's like, why don't you talk to my wife about it, and then she'll relay the information to me. And he leaves the room. By the way, during dinner, all they want to talk about is like these B-sexy Skinamax movies. They're like going on and on about Shannon Tweed. So they're going on and on about how great Shannon Tweed is. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? This guy won an Oscar. He leaves to go smoke his pipe. And I'm sitting there with his wife. And I slowly realize that she's the beard, that she wrote it. He didn't write it. I'm like, there's no way James Goldman wrote this. I I can't remember what happened, but I don't remember getting any rewrites or anything back. The whole thing was a bust. You know, I think at that point I was like, you know what, never mind. Let's just, uh, let's talk on the phone. Then let's move into the film's release because it had a weird, weird release. You mentioned earlier they wanted to make four cyberpunk movies, so, or or cyber movies. Here, their idea was they were going to, they call it four walling. I don't know if they still call it there. It's where you rent a theater. You rent all four walls of the building. They were going to get a multiplex. They were going to show all four movies on four screens. You would buy a one-day pass. You could see all four movies for the one ticket, and there'd be booths in the lobby, like selling things and doing whatever, cyber comic books, like a little mini comic book convention in the lobby, and it was going to be called like Cyberfest, and they were going to go city to city with it. That was the pitch. They only ended up making the second of the four films. The Cyberfest thing never happened. The movie was released... I believe it was the Laserdisc release, because DVDs were just coming out. In the liner notes, I guess whoever wrote them just had all these press releases, this original, like, kind of medium releases. And he writes this whole thing on the liner note about this cyber festival that happened, which never happened. Like, total fake news. You know, so I think it's funny, like, how much you can actually believe history, because, like, that like that never happened. You know, that, that that's an example. But it, w- it would never... We did do a film print. We had a premiere. I don't think it ever played in a theater, not that I was aware of. But it did sell everywhere. It played on HBO and Cinemax like a lot in the 90s. It was always in the middle of the night. For about 10 years, people would call me and go, oh my God, Cyberbands, your movie's on right now. Got delegated to DVD, definitely to the dollar bin section, and definitely to uh, those DVDs where they put two movies on one DVD. You know, it's like the two-for-one sale. One thing that I found weird about that is when I picked up the DVD, and yes, it was from a dollar store, is, you know, I just bought it because I'm into cyberpunk, and I saw the title, and I'm like, oh, interesting cast. You know, I hadn't seen the movie at that point. It's full frame, and the Laserdisc is full frame, and all of the prints out there are full frame, but you shot it widescreen. Is there any chance of a widescreen print ever coming out, like a new master Uh, DVD? Because there are, because I'm going to tell you right now. Zero chance of that. I don't think anyone even knows where the negative is. That company isn't in business. I wonder if I have a VHS of it in 185. You know, I would have to dig through my storage. I wonder if I threw it away not realizing that. I, you, you know, you're the first to point that out. That's a, I, I never thought about that. Uh, it's on YouTube. The whole film's for free on YouTube. But somebody just uploaded to YouTube who probably has some permission to do that or license it for that. I'm not so sure about that because a lot not- of movies are on YouTube that are not legally allowed to be there. That we're even having this conversation right now. No one's ever asked me about it. <laughs> you did seem a little surprised when I first contacted you. Because, you know, I didn't know Eric Fleming. I mean, that's a relatively common name. I, I wasn't right. sure if you were the correct person. And you were kind of like, yes, I am. No, Facebook is, ama- is, is awesome. I'm telling you, I projects that I've done over the last 20 years, I have gotten directly to the writers, producers, the authors, whoever, through Facebook. And you circumvent their agents and their publicists and everything, which is amazing. 
I think Cyber Bandits is one people should check out. The entire movie is for free on YouTube. Not legally, but you can still find it on YouTube for free. Check it out. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. After that, let's go into some of the more mainstream ones. You've got ones that, again, I'm right on the line with this. Because I said Lawnmower Man is not, but Lawnmower Man 2 is. I do want to say Virtuosity is a cyber 90s movie, even though it does deal with VR in a way. It does deal more with the cyberpunk angle of super charismatic evil Russell Crowe kind of breaking into our world. But there's a, I don't know, is, is Virtuosity a cyberpunk movie or not? Got a really great vibe to it. I think it absolutely is like a cyber 90s movie. Uh, Russell Crowe is really charismatic in it. It's it's one that I've I've always enjoyed. I just I just love how Russell Crowe is uh, again, this is the weird thing sometimes and I got nothing against Denzel Washington. He's a fantastic actor. He's not nearly as good in this movie as he is in something like Ricochet, which is a piece of crap, but he's way better in. Oh, shut up. We've already <laughs> discussed that. Russell Crowe just outacts him in this because Russell, as the villain, Russell Crowe is so much freer to just go nuts in this movie. And this is early Russell Crowe coming. He'd been an actor in Australia for years. Russell Crowe coming to America. I think he steals this movie from Denzel Washington. Well, yeah, because he was he was still trying to kind of make a name for himself in the States at that point, I believe. So he was like really hungry, really wanting to show what he can do. And he definitely steals the film. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a cyberpunk film it it kind of is on the line a bit but with russell crowe kind of uh being 6.7 coming out of the computer and he needs glass to like replenish himself and it had a lot of very unique ideas he had denzel washington with dreadlocks it wouldn't it didn't work for everyone and i thought that there were certain parts that drug on a little bit too long like him in the club making everyone scream I thought it was it was neat, and I would have liked a little bit more kind of futuristic-y stuff thrown in there. For what it was, I thought it was cool. Virtuosity has that weird thing that, that some cyber 90s movies do, especially the bigger budget ones, strangely enough. This is clearly set in the future. Dialogue, they, they never tell us when it takes place, but dialogue clearly sets this in the future. The technology is 20, 30 years in the future, but everything is mid-90s. The clothing is all <laughs> mid-90s, the music is all mid-90s, all of the architecture is mid-90s. Everything is mid-90s, except for the fact that we're telling you it's not mid-90s. For <laughs> some reason, the lower-budget cyber-90s movies made more of an effort to actually seem like they were futuristic. And Virtuosity has that. If you're not paying attention, you could absolutely see this takes place in, like, 1994. I absolutely love Strange Days. I think it's one of the best movies of the late 1990s. Does that count as a cyber-90s movie? Because the squid thing, I think, almost makes it cyberpunk. The movie is missing everything else that would you'd associate with a cyberpunk film. It's an amazing action movie. I love it. My girlfriend and I watch it every single year on New Year's. I don't know. Is Strange Days a cyber 90s movie or not? Strange Days is weird because it was film that showed an alternate universe 1999 so with, with a lot more reliance on computers what they thought virtual reality was going to kind of be i love the concepts of it i love the flow of it i think it is i agree it is a fantastic movie pacing the story everything about it is is done very very well i wouldn't put it so much as a cyberpunk movie i would say it's more of a alternate reality movie or alternate you know, 1999 movie, because a lot of the stuff in there is stuff that did happen uh, or was like alternate versions of what happened. It just was they had better technology than we did at the time. I definitely think it is a cyber 90s cyberpunk style film, but also just in general, great aesthetic, great vibe, just overall a really, really awesome movie. What about a cyber 90s movie that has dated probably worse than any other cyber 90s movie? Hackers. Because <laughs> I love the movie, but this is a movie that was instantly dated. There's that scene where they're talking about how much processing power their laptops have, and they're like, oh my god! And I'm going, um, you guys know that my Atari can do about that, right? I love Hackers, but it is an instantly dated cyber 90s movie. It's strangely enough, not a cyberpunk movie, but it is absolutely a cyber 90s movie. 
And it also has probably the greatest and the most how high were you depiction of what the internet would actually look like. The big towers, cities, and and you know, you drive through it and everything. Oh god, I kind of miss that that optimism for the internet, you know? No, Hackers is fantastic both for the right reasons and for all the wrong reasons. I think it's one of the most enjoyable and one of the most entertaining 90s future gazing science gazing kind of movies the way they depicted like how hackers are and how they work and stuff is it's so much fun that's that's one that i can pop in and just enjoy uh anytime hackers is what we wanted the like the whole internet thing to be we wanted yes. to be you know kids drive you know going around on rollerblades and they're out smart and the man and they're crash using override crash override and, and <laughs> acid burn and serial killer you know they all had these cool handles uh, they dressed weird and they were smarter than the man it was great like i love hackers it's so silly it really is i think i said in my video where the movie's depiction of the teenagers was that it was written by someone who never saw actual teenagers but they or never actually encountered teenagers but they saw them once in a pepsi commercial and that was <laughs> like about how accurate, they yeah. wrote the characters they were so ridiculous and silly and everybody kind of had their own shtick it's uh it is a incredibly entertaining film uh, i think everyone is giving it like everyone i think is playing it very seriously even though it is a very silly movie and like you said the technology that they were raving about was so dated by like even the time the film finally did come out it, it did. If you know anything about computers, you were just kind of laughing at the stuff that they were doing. You know, they're going to like the pay phones and they're hacking into like the FBI's mainframes. And it, it was um, it was corny, but absolutely. <laughs> and, but, uh, but I still enjoy it. But was it more corny than The Net with Sandra Bullock, which might be the most. OK, if it wasn't for that Lifetime movie, Cyber Seduction, about the kid being addicted to, to Internet porn, The Net might be the most unrealistic depiction of, an, of the Internet in a movie ever. <laughs> I think, honestly, I don't like remakes. Uh, in general, kind of as a general rule. But I think if they were able to make the the net now, it would be a little bit more accurate. Like then they were kind of making it silly. You know, identity theft is is a lot more serious thing. People hey, being she ordered uh, pizza on the beach from pizza dot com. <laughs> no. <laughs> And that was the other thing, too. You have Sandra Bullock, who's very attractive. She's on the beach in a bikini on the computer, you know, on a laptop. and A laptop that just... looks like a giant brick. Oh, well, <laughs> well, laptops back then were, you know, they yeah. were 90% battery. She's on the beach and she's the nerd. Oh, God, it was so corny. But um, <laughs> And her I boyfriend is word... Dennis Miller. Well, her ex-boyfriend was Dennis Miller. Mm. Okay, babe. Hey, at least they got we got me to up see in him the die. hospital, babe. Oh, I like Dennis Miller. Lighten up. He, but I think that it is it is ridiculous. It is absolutely silly. There are. Uh, uh, it's another movie, much like Hackers. They have all of this code that they managed to be able to squeeze onto like a freaking one point four megabyte floppy, and she she get, takes down the uh, the evil people with it. And it's <laughs> it, the movie was probably great for her cardio because she's running most of the movie. Like but that yeah. kind of was the thing. We don't know what to do here. Have run but it, it, it's also away. the net is also sort of a scare film it's look how scary the internet is look how easy they took over her life look how easy they framed her as a prostitute look how easy they they completely erased her and no one knows her and i'm thinking but wait a minute she was born so wouldn't there be a paper birth certificate there would be high school photos it's it's yeah. not like her entire life only existed on the internet which is what the net <laughs> tells us that it did well i think again Again, that's why I think now they could do it a little bit easier if they were to remake it because so many things are now existing only on the internet. So you could fake somebody. You could, I mean, you know, like those deep fakes and all the stuff that's coming out now. You could do like a fake Instagram account and deep fake. And, and like I, there's a lot of stuff that exists now that didn't exist back then that would make something like that a lot more believable. But back then it but was just like, ludicrous. Does, does believability, does that make it more fun? And engaging as the net was, which is like, I think a lot of the unintentional, ridiculous 
90s cyber stuff in the movie and like the future gazing and what the internet might be like is what I think kind of makes the movie hold up because it makes it really fun whereas I think if you made one that was like a super serious take it might be very quickly and very easily forgettable well I want to talk about two of these but we need to get out what about ghost in the machine i started thinking about this one the other day so the serial killer gets killed and his mind gets put into circuitry and he can go through electricity you know kind of shocker style in a way it's kind of a rip off a shocker and i started mm. thinking because he's harassing one woman and nobody believes he's there i started thinking that new invisible man movie that just came out that it's a total rip off of ghost in the machine isn't it it's also a complete ripoff of a uh, of an episode from the 90s Batman cartoon, which features the same chick voicing the chick that's getting harassed by an evil Invisible Man. So the new Invisible Man movie is like the furthest thing from an original adaptation of anything. I know. I'm just saying, when I, when I rewatched the trailer for Ghost in the Machine, all I could think of was, this is the new universal Invisible Man. It's just electrical-based <laughs> versus science-based. It's oh, the same God. movie. But the two I really want to talk about, Johnny Mnemonic, a film that I I still can't believe so many people hate. Okay, I get it. It deviates a lot from the source material. That's one of the biggest complaints. But you guys do know that the writer of the source material, William Gibson, also wrote Johnny Mnemonic, right? Okay, the movie didn't turn out the way he or Robert Longo wanted. Fine. I absolutely love Johnny Mnemonic, and Johnny Mnemonic is one of the best cyber 90s movies ever. Amazing cast, amazing soundtrack. They absolutely nailed the cyberpunk look. I even love probably more than the hacker's version of the internet. I love Internet 2021. Crash your board from here, man. No, it's my livelihood. (laughs) They put a tracker on you, man. It's a virus. I mean, what is not to love about Johnny Mnemonic, man? Come on. All of you who are like, oh, it's stupid. It's just mindless violence. It's the big Hollywoodization of a little... Shut up. It's a great movie. It's basically like if if you were to adapt like Shadowrun and make it into a movie, it's pretty much what Johnny Mnemonic is. It's no, because it Shadowrun would then have dwarves and dragons and shit. And and yeah, elves well, and... fine, but it's, it's like still, similar, it's that, but yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. It's it's like very much, you know, you've got brain couriers, information couriers, you've got like street samurais and whatnot, you know, with like the the, the preacher character that Dolph Lundgren is playing. It's got all these different facets of like cyberpunk subculture, and it's so great. Like the 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 movie oozes that cyberpunk style, and sure, it's got some like over the top elements of it, but it's like you can't tell me that like. Keanu Reeves isn't on his like a game in terms of being like really, really entertaining. Henry Rollins is so much fun. Dolph Lundgren is so much fun. Can't remember her name, but the chick from Starship Troopers is, is really awesome in Dina, it. Dina um, Meyer. Dina Meyer. Yes, yes, yes. I just I love I love Johnny Mnemonic. It's it's a movie that I would I would rent almost endlessly when I was a kid because there's there's something about it that I really like and still to this day I really enjoy it. I, I enjoyed both versions of it. I, I really love the Japanese laser disc cut that it that features a little more on the Yakuza and I really love the original theatrical cut as well that features more on Johnny Mnemonic character. I just love it overall as a movie. I, I think it it is the definitely one of the examples of if, if someone's asking you, you know, what's what's like a pure cyberpunk movie that I could watch, like you either tell them like to me, at least it would be Blade Runner or Johnny Mnemonic in terms of like 90s stuff. Johnny Mnemonic is a perfect future gazing over the top cyber 90s film. And I've always really loved it. And Johnny Mnemonic is also one of those examples of just how weird Hollywood is. Robert Longo and William Gibson wanted to make the movie as a $1.5 million black and white art film, and they could not find the money. They said, if you make it into a $30 million action film, we'll give you the money. (laughs) Hollywood, right? We will not give you the money to make your little million dollar art film in black and white, but we will give you 30 times what you wanted if you put big stars in it and add a whole bunch of action scenes. (laughs) Hollywood. I also love Johnny Mnemonic. It is my quintessential 90s post-apocalyptic cyberpunk film. I've got uh, the freaking... I've got Johnny Mnemonic mugs. I've got... uh, 
I have uh th- like still uh frames from the 30 from a 35 millimeter print of the film. I've got like other like giant mnemonic m- movie memorabilia. I know the director doesn't like the Japanese cut, but I think the Japanese cut, the laser disc is more in depth it's with more, a lot it's of more yeah. thorough with with it's both more thorough. It fills in more of the uh it fills in a lot more of the story. It fills in more of the story. It explains things a little bit better. It has a different soundtrack. It gives uh Beat Kitano a little bit more time. Beat Takeshi. Um or, or beat, to, beat Takeshi, yeah. It yes. also um, adds more to Dolph well, Lundgren's character too. Yes, yeah. it does. You get you get some stuff that was uh, lifted out of the theatrical release. Like I think that that cut of the film is fantastic if you already love the theatrical cut and you just want more of the movie. Like it's great for that. It is. Uh, it's such a neat movie. It's good looking. I think Keanu plays the role very perfectly. Uh, I know a lot of people laughed at stuff like hey, the Dolph. There's dolphins with. It's like, well, yeah. Hey, guess what? That was in the book too well in the, yeah, the short it was. Well, too. You, you also have to realize that we didn't really have dolphins that were hackers but you do realize that the u.s government in the 1950s and 60s during the cold war actually trained dolphins to be able to swim up to russian submarines and plant mines on the hull right this is just a yeah, variation of something, something there the, the is whole, something to that the whole jones thing is literally a variation on something that is real it's just because the the jones in the book is he would swim up to submarines and he'd be able to hack them through the hull it's literally a variation on something that really happened it yeah. might look ridiculous but then blame the u.s government during the cold war for that (laughs) well it's also because people don't know history they Mm -hmm. see something and they oh it's dumb that that would never happen guess what it happened 50 years ago it's just people that want to be persnickety for the sake of it I remember it's just people that they want to do their little like riffy commentary on things like oh look how dumb it is dolphin is the smartest thing And then the other one I want to talk about is this one's sort of more on the line because it's more of an action movie than anything. Nemesis. Albert Pune's Nemesis with Oliver Grunier. Oh my god. To me, this is is an absolute cyber 90s movie, but it doesn't have a lot of the cyber. It's more cyborg, although they call them androids because (laughs) they call people that are complete robots cyborgs and people that have robot parts but are mostly human androids, which I'm still not going to let that go because because that drives me up the goddamn wall <laughs> that they do that. But I still love Nemesis. But this one's right on the line because it, it's almost like it's an action movie first. And all the cyber stuff is just sort of thrown in as, as aesthetics. 90s cyber, cyber gazing, future gazing, cyberpunk movie. Oliver Grunner is, or Olivier Grunner, however. Olivier, yeah, Olivier Grunier. Olivier Grunner. He's French. He's the first French kung fu artist. He's awesome. Well, well, um, I mean, you've also got Van Damme from Brussels, who who also speaks French. So I think it's it's the two of them. But Brussels and France are are not the same thing. Ah, it's it's similar. They're they're both uh, they're both very <laughs> to me. So I love Nemesis to death. Uh, I do think Grunner is just fantastic. Grunier, man. I, I, Grunier, is it Grunier? Grunier. It's Grunier. What the. F- so I'll, I did I'll get it right when I, when I reviewed yeah. Nemesis. Good lord. Okay. I love the movie, though. Uh, I really, really enjoy the shit out of it. I do think it's... I, I honestly think it is Albert Pune's flagship film. All-time favorite movies in general. It's something I can always put on and watch and enjoy. I love the cast. I love Grenier. I love... Tim Thomerson is great as, like, the weird CIA cyborg android motherfucker. With Brian uh, James as his partner. Brian James as his partner. You get you get Sven Sven Oli Thorson shows up in there. Uh, I believe Peter Kent also shows up as like an android cyborg thing. Tom Matthews shows up as a weird cyborg android thing that has like a gun that comes out of his eye. Nemesis is just such a cool movie. Awesome. Like it blends like martial arts and gung fu and the whole. It, it's something that I've I've always considered because I'd seen it back when I was a kid, just watching uh, UPN B movie marathons and stuff. And then The Matrix came out, and I was like, this all feels really familiar. And I've always um, honestly assumed that the Wachowskis had seen Nemesis when they were younger and then wanted to make their own version of it. Because Matrix, to me, has all the, the similar aesthetics that Nemesis had. Because Oh, it, it even trench- rips off whole scenes. Like, remember the famous yeah. scene where Neo shoots, or Trinity shoots through the floor to get to the yeah. next level? Um, Grunier does that in Nemesis for in 1992. Yeah. My God. 
like and not only that but like like the the kung fu stuff the running and gunning trench coats sunglasses like all that stuff except the only difference is it's the mood is different where matrix feels a lot more cold nemesis feels very hot like you you feel like it's like got a scorching heat kind of aesthetic to it but overall it's like kind of tell that like the matrix definitely borrowed some stuff from from albert pune and and for good reason like it's to me, it's it's one of the best cyberpunk, cyber 90s science fiction flicks where like where Johnny Mnemonic is really enjoyable. And I would always recommend it as like a cyber 90s movie. I want as many people as possible to see Nemesis because that that's one that's like even more like underappreciated and underseen. It's like where people that have like a lot of them have seen Johnny Mnemonic and they they take the piss out of it. And they talk about how dumb it is, how apparently dumb it is or whatever. There are people that don't even know that Nemesis even exists. And to me, that's like, that's heartbreaking to me because it is a genuinely awesome film. I agree with Peter. I think it is Albert Pune firing on all cylinders. It is him showing what he can do and what he can do well. There is action. There is explosions. There is some amazing sequences. I think the story is there. It's really cool because it's showing this guy who is constantly getting into like gunfights and whatnot and keeps getting parts of his humanity destroyed and then rebuilt. And then the whole thing is, am I more machine than man at this point? Interesting thing that you wouldn't expect to see in in you know 90s cyber action film uh you had i mean you have a character named max impact for crying out loud it's really was, fun uh, was that tim tim thomerson's character no sure. no that was uh merle kennedy tim thomerson okay. was uh farnsworth but, but um but but the thing with nemesis is you need to stop there do not watch the sequels they oh, will only bad. piss you off <laughs> They will well, only piss you off. I don't understand the sequels because it's like when I heard they were doing a sequel, I was super excited. And then it's like, wait, who's this bitch? Like, it's like they have this uh, American <laughs> and, 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 gladiator. And the, the, the sequels are more fantasy, like, you know, post-apocalyptic. And they, they lost all the cyberpunk and the, the sequels. I don't even want to get into that. But Nemesis 2, Nemesis 2 is the one with like the bodybuilder chick and that thing, that robot that looked like the Predator. Yeah, like, in oh, two, oh, three, three, and four. In, in which, yeah. yeah, which I'm like, I'm like, how did like Nemesis is amazing, and then we get three sequels that don't focus on anything that had to do with anything in the first movie. Like anything if they that was like the best parts of of the first film. Like if like they all, the, all made... the great cyberpunk elements. If they would have made Nemesis 2, 3, and 4 as like a trilogy of something that wasn't Nemesis, I probably would have been a little bit more okay with it. But the fact Mm. that it was Nemesis 2, 3, and 4 and had zero to do with the first movie, with the exception of the fact that they they said like Sue Price was like the was sent from the future. I don't even remember the deal, but she she like was was part of Oliver Grunier's consciousness from the it was something that didn't make any goddamn sense. And it just was really weird. And I don't hate them. They are a steep drop off from the first film. Oh, definitely. When it comes to Cyber 90s, I really want to thank Eric Fleming for talking about Cyber Bandits. And I'm the first person that's ever talked to him about that. Cyber Bandits is, like I said, it's av- it's available on YouTube for free. I think you should check it out. Its original title was The Sailor's Tattoo because it was supposed it was very much downplaying the cybernetic elements, the future elements. As he explained in the interview, this was supposed to be part of a package of four films that were going to travel around the country with like a cybernetic sort of parade around it where they, they would buy all, all of the theaters. You'd see all four films. There'd be soundtracks and you could get posters and everything and none of that happened. I do think you should check out Cyber Bandits. If not Nothing else, you get to see Adam Ant shot in the face. So that's something. And Robert Hayes plays a pretty good psychopath villain. And we're used to seeing Robert Hayes playing good guys. So he looks like he's really having fun as a sadistic bastard. So that's check- usually the most fun, uh, fun role to play. It, it opens up the most uh, opportunities to get real crazy with it. Well, yeah, as Eric said in the interview, that's probably why Robert agreed to do it. It was he was playing against type. Check out Cyber Bandits and check out some of these cyber 90s movies that we talked about, like Digital Prophet, Cyber Tracker, Cyber Zone or Droid Gunner, Cyber Bandits, Virtual Assassin, a.k.a. Cyberjack, Shepard, a.k.a. Cyber City, Circuitry Man, Megaville, Ghost in the Machine, a.k.a. the New Invisible Man movie, Virtuosity, (laughs) Johnny Mnemonic, Strange Days, Hackers, Freejack, Nemesis. Check out these Cyber 90s movies 
let us know what you think of them. Because you can contact Peter at... At Cinematica on Twitter or on Facebook, The Cinemasticist, or YouTube, The Cinemasticist. Feel free to leave whatever comments or talk to me about whatever cyber 90s movies you may have seen. Or if you want to gush about Nemesis and how fucking beautiful Olivier Grenier is, however the you pronounce that guy's name but he's awesome and nemesis is awesome and a lot of these films that we talked about today are great launching pad for checking out some cyber 90s movies if you haven't really gotten too into the genre before these are some great flagship films you can also find me on 1201beyond.com with other fine programming and on patreon and cecil can be found gushing over his johnny mnemonic merchandise where uh, over at uh, goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on youtube twitter facebook twitch if i didn't say it i don't know if i said it and uh, 1201beyond.com hack the planet and you, you can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon. Really helps out if, if you want to help out the show at all. And you can go to 1201beyond.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.